Over the last several weeks, we have looked at the life of Martin Luther, and we started kind of with a brief sketch of his early years, and we, we worked up to that climactic moment in 1521 before the Diet of Worms, and, and in every case, what I've been trying to do is, is not just give you a, a bare history lesson, though, though we've talked a lot about things, and you've learned more than, than some people who even go through seminary ever really understand about Luther and his story. I've given you a lot of, of history and a lot of that because it's important, and it does matter, and I think we can be shaped by the lives of those who have, have gone before us. But the whole point of, of each week was always to get to a text, to a, to a moment, and particularly to the scripture, and how that was used by God to shape the world from the life of Martin Luther, perhaps, and even into our own day. So we've looked at some, some texts that, in, in my own experience, my own heart, my own life, have profoundly impacted me. They weren't just something that, that were great and important to Martin Luther or to someone a long time ago. Texts that are alive and active and the Lord uses today, like Romans 1, 16 and 17, where we read of Paul, the apostle, saying, well, I, I hope all of our hearts are longing to be able to say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This great text opened the eyes of Martin Luther, the heart of Martin Luther, set his soul free, gave him great boldness as we have talked about. But this text does the same thing to all who grasp it and understand this is the call of God, to live a life of faith day in, day out. That is how we are to be. And we've looked at other texts like Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 and Galatians 2, 16, which speak clearly of this, this greatness of our salvation being found only by faith alone. Ephesians 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Galatians 2 tells us, For we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, so that we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This, this is a great freeing message that the scripture gives us about how to be made right with God. It, it truly is transformative, right? It's, it set Luther free from the monastic pursuit of I'm going to earn God's love by what I do in these religious systems that, that are all around me. And it sets people, you and I today, free from this idea of legalism, of moralism, that it, you know, we have to work hard. We have to do enough to make God love us too. The Bible comes back and gives us grace and faith as the way to receive God's salvation. And we saw in the last few weeks the example of the three Hebrew men who, who really truly believed in the power and the providence, the rulership, as we even sang this morning, of their God, and how that gave them boldness to stand before Nebuchadnezzar in ancient Babylon and say, we will not sin against our God. Though you may take our life, we will remain faithful to him. And, and through that text, we, we went back into Luther's story, right? How he saw that, he referenced that very thing and said it was their example that he drew boldness from. And not just their example, but the faithfulness of God who shows up in the fire, right? With those three men to deliver them. He says, that's my God. And, and if I go and stand before the emperor, he can do the same thing for me. 
And that's where we left his story, really, two weeks ago. It was April 18th, 1521. Martin Luther had stood before Emperor Charles V. He was asked, recant completely of your works, your teachings. And he responded with that famous reply that we looked at. Just the very end of it is so powerful. He says, I am bound to the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. There's a lot of good phrases in there, but one that stands out to me in the title of our message this morning is that phrase of Luther's declaration of of what it is that held him so secure. He said, I am captive to the word of God. Now we left Luther there two weeks ago. And over these last two weeks, I've been asked multiple times by multiple different people, so uh, what happened <laughs> to Luther? <laughs> like we, we don't know. What was the end of the story? Well, that's a good question, and it's an it's a, it's a answer I want you to have. So today I want to pick up the story from right there. Martin Luther gives his response, and that's basically it. It was late in the day. He, uh, he makes his speech. First, he makes it in... Uh, Latin or German, then he does it in Latin. And those who understood what he was saying thought, this is, this is amazing, this is pivotal, you know, there's a lot of conversations going on, and, and it's late, and the emperor says, all right, we're, we're done, and he dismisses the Diet, and then everyone kind of goes away for the night, and the next morning, the Diet reassembles, and Charles, the emperor, Charles V, is ready to deal with what he heard the night before. But the response of Emperor Charles V was not a sense of awe. It wasn't encouragement. It wasn't inspiration. It wasn't a, oh, yes. That was so, that's right at the heart of what the Christian life should be like, right? It's not the, the response I have when I read Luther's statement. In fact, Emperor Charles V asked for response, but, but everyone was still processing, kind of reeling from what they had just witnessed. This little monk from nowhere, a nobody, standing up to the most powerful person on earth at that time in defiance. I will not recant. And they, they were trying to figure out, what do we do with this? And so since he couldn't get answers from those in the room, Charles said, I will read to you what I have written. And he read out this statement the very next morning after the Diet had reconvened. Charles says... I am determined to use all my kingdoms and possessions, my friends, my body, my blood, my life, and my soul. And I declare that I now regret having played so long the proceedings against Martin Luther and his false doctrines. I am resolved that I will never again hear him talk and to now act and proceed against him as a notorious heretic and enemy of the empire." This was the exact response that the papacy wanted. The emperor was declaring his full support would be behind the papal bull. Remember the document that the pope, Leo X, had issued calling Martin Luther a heretic, condemning his teachings, telling him he must recant of all of it. And of course, Luther very famously took the papal bull after he had received it and threw it into the fire publicly. Now, the emperor himself was resolved that he would see Luther and his teachings destroyed. It was simply in a matter of this time of how do we do it and when. Because political pressure was mounting and fear of a revolt by the German peasants who loved Luther was a real threat. 
As soon as this statement was read by the emperor, it began to spread, and there became the real possibility of an uprising would take place by the common people there in Worms. Some of the more politically sensitive who understood what was probably going to transpire if Luther was gone and seized by imperial soldiers right then, they understood there would be a riot, there would be death, there would be great destruction. They, they were able to kind of step in and delay Charles a little bit from executing immediately this rash sense of action that he might have taken. So for three days, for three days, Luther was actually privately addressed once more, this time by the archbishop of the area. And he was trying to convince Luther to do anything he could to recant or to trap Luther into saying something that may turn the common people against Luther and onto the side of the emperor. The whole goal was to do this in such a way to get some result that no uprising would happen. And in the course of the questioning and the discussion over and over and over, Luther just kept coming back to the same thing Luther had kept coming back to in all of his teaching up to this point. He kept maintaining that Scripture was the highest authority and the only reliable authority for the Christian. He wanted to have his teachings and his doctrines judged by the Word of God, not by the Pope, not by the opinions of some scholars who had written different books, not by how long traditions had been held. He wanted to be heard out on the basis of the Word of God. And so Luther was making the same bold statements he'd been making before, referring to the authority of God and his word as being even higher than the authority of popes and emperors even. He was citing texts like Isaiah 33, 22, saying, For the Lord, Yahweh, is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king, and he will save us. Or Psalm chapter 9, verses 7 to 9. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed and a stronghold in times of trouble. And Luther even went to texts like Matthew 5, verse 15, verse 3, rather, where Jesus said, Why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of your traditions? He continues in verses 7 to 9 by saying, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The texts like this were far more to Luther than just verses that you would come across in Bible study or devotional reading throughout the year. These were far more than just the words that applied to ancient situations and ancient followers of God. They weren't just things that took place in historical things that people who are historically minded might might enjoy reading about. No, Luther read these words and saw life-changing truths in them that led to an awe-inspiring, courage-producing result in Martin Luther. He knew these were the very words of God, and they spoke to him just as they had spoken to the people that originally heard them in the text of Scripture. Again, I I don't want us to have a wrong view of Luther. Luther was not just a man who was born bold. He, He wasn't just naturally eager for a fight. He didn't want to just make changes for the sake of changes. Luther was a man who was profoundly shaped, radically changed, really, by the Word of God. All of the boldness that we see and admire in Luther, all of the resolve that he had to fight against sin and darkness and the captivity of false religion, it came from him himself being transformed and led by the word of God. 
These were not his own thoughts that led him to do the things that he did. He knew what it would cost. He suffered greatly for what he did. He was hated by so many because he stood for truth and in the light against sin. It wasn't for Luther, and it still isn't today easy to do this. This, my friends, is not the key to a happy, easy life in this world. Luther did what he did because he truly was, as he said before the emperor himself, held captive to the word of God. Luther firmly believed that the course of action he had undertaken, this this commitment he had to teach the scriptures as the highest authority, to refuse to propagate spiritually deadly traditions, to be a person who would live in the light and holiness of God, as uncomfortable and as exposed as that was for him and for everyone who is in that position, he must do that rather than hide in sin and darkness and lies for the sake of his own comfort, Luther believed this was the calling God himself had put on his life, revealed to him through the word. And Luther further believed this was really what was true for all true Christian people. So toward the end of those three days, the archbishops exasperated. Luther is not caving on this. He wants to go back to scripture, back to scripture, back to scripture, and he just won't stop saying that. And so he says to Luther, so what would you have us do? How can this matter of who is right, you alone or the entire Roman Catholic Church and the Pope himself, how can this be settled? What do you say? Luther said, you would do well to heed the counsel of Gamaliel in Acts chapter 5 and let God be the judge of what is right through what history will reveal. He was citing this text, Acts chapter 5, verse 38 and 39. So in in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Again, I think Luther had had great insight and a wonderful grasp on the word of God, or rather, as he would say, the word of God had a wonderful grasp on him. I think Luther's quite right in what he says here. This is one of the great values of history and learning from history, looking back historically, because we're able to see more sharply the things that we fail to see clearly when we're in the midst of moments, when we're able to reflect back with the temper of history applied to it. Reflection is an incredibly powerful and incomparably beneficial thing, though it's often destructively neglected in our lives. In these moments, that Luther was in, and and in the moments like the ones we live in right now, when emotions are high, when not all the facts are known or being really weighed out properly, we can simply feel compelled to react rather than to really understand, and we can come to bad conclusions, right? Anybody made a mistake in a moment (laughs) that upon reflection you've realized, well, that wasn't the best thing I should have (laughs) done. Time has a way of helping us see what we're often blind to in the moment, And so looking back on Luther's day from our vantage point, all of these years later, we can clearly see this calling that he felt, this calling he was living out, this idea of the Reformation principles that he was preaching and proclaiming, they were really truly of God. God was behind using the 95 theses he nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg. He was behind using the Heidelberg disputation, the Leipzig debate, and this bold speech here at the Diet of Worms. All of these things were part of the fuel that God was pouring in on this fire of reformation that he was using to spread across the world. Of course, we see the benefit of history and look back and understand, ah, that's what's taking place. But imagine you're sitting there in that moment 
you're the archbishop, and Luther says, well, you know, hey, leave me alone. Let's see what God says about it through the course of history. And, and by the way, my cause is very much like the cause of the apostles, right? As he's referencing this text, well, the archbishop doesn't like that <laughs> very much. But as I said, everything in these three days, all these discussions were always being filtered through political calculations. And so what ended up being the case was the emperor, it was well known, he had promised Martin a passage of safe conduct to and from the Diet of Worms. And in many times, those promises would be made, then they'd simply be broken whenever it benefited the emperor or the pope or whoever had given the promise. And the, the story of Jan Hus, who just 100 years before this, about 1415, uh, he had been promised safe conduct to come to the Council of Constance and, and was promised, come, explain your views, and, and, and you can then go back to where you were, and we'll judge, and we'll determine what's going on. And as moment he arrived, he was seized, arrested, thrown into prison, over and over again, told, recant, recant, recant. He refused, 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 and so they took him outside the city put him on a stake, put wood all around him, and burned him alive. And everyone knew this. Luther knew this had happened. The common people knew this was happening. And, so the, and the, the common people were, were sick of this. If the promise of an emperor or the pope to even you know, give safe conduct can't be trusted, what can be? And so people knew that if this were to happen with Luther, it would not be taken lightly. And the, the people who were doing these political calculations thought it's a real possibility that the, the commoners would rise up and there'd be great rebellion. So the emperor determined he would hold true to his word. Though he had just said he would mobilize everything he had against Luther, he would give Luther 21 days. Luther could return to Wittenberg, put his things in order, see his friends once more. He would not be arrested and killed there in Worms. So Luther was cheerful when told this news. He again echoed Acts chapter 5, this time verse 41, and said, As it pleases the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, for I have been found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. So on April 22nd, Luther and his friend Amsdorf, who'd come with him from Wittenberg, got back into the cart that they had rode in on and began this long journey back home from Worms to Wittenberg. Amsdorf publicly was worried. He said this to many people. He was worried assassins would be laying en route that Luther really had no chance of making it home to Wittenberg. Either the emperor or the pope had sent somebody to kill Luther along the way, and they were just trying to hide the fact by saying they, that he would be able to return to Wittenberg. And despite that really being a strong possibility, things like this happened all the time at this point of history. Luther publicly declared, regardless of the risk, he wanted to go home. He wanted to see his friends, his flock, the church that he pastored once more. And he'd be honored to have stood firm for the word of God, no matter what came ahead. So they began the long journey, and Luther was kept safe through various stops and towns all along the way. And as they were beginning to get closer to Wittenberg, felt much, much safer. We're on kind of familiar ground, areas near where Luther had grown up, even had family members there. They're getting closer, just a few days away from home. And on March 4th, 1521, the fear that Amsdorf had publicly expressed was realized. As the cart went down into a ravine, they were in the midst of dark shadows all along this path, crossing to the other side. And suddenly they heard the echo of galloping horses approaching. Very quickly, a, a group of armed knights, helmets on, crossbows aimed at the cart, pulled up and demanded, with very coarse language, to know who this driver was transporting in the cart. The man understood his life would be at an end if they didn't like what he said, so he said, I better had say the truth. I'm, I'm Transporting the Dr. Martin Luther, it's him, don't kill me, <laughs> I'm just the driver. 
Amsdorf stood up in the cart, realizing this was probably the end of his friend, but trying once more, he said, no, the emperor Charles himself has given safe conduct to Luther. He must return home. But the knights shoved him down, told him to be silent, and grabbed Martin from the cart. It happened quickly. Martin only had time to grab his Greek New Testament, his Hebrew Old Testament, two books in his hands. He was yanked from the cart, thrown onto a horse, and away they rode into the darkness. The cart driver, Amsdorf, and another monk who had actually been with them since the last town all turned back and went back to the town they had left about five miles behind them and reported the terrible news. Dr. Luther has been kidnapped. And everyone knew what that meant. By the time they had reached the town, Luther was probably already dead in a ditch somewhere. His body would never be found. No one would ever know what awful things truly happened to him. The news spread rapidly, and the imperial powers and the papal powers were very pleased. Of course, they didn't take any credit for what had happened. There would be no actions admitted on their part. But one of the most famous German artists of the day, upon hearing of this kidnapping, wrote this lament. Oh, he said, I know not whether Luther lives or is murdered, but in any case, he has suffered for the Christian truth. If we lose this man, who has written more clearly than any other in centuries, May God grant his spirit to another. His books should be held in great honor and not burned as the emperor commands, but rather we should burn the books of his enemies. Oh God, if Luther is dead, who will henceforth explain the gospel? What might not he have written for us in the next 10 or 20 years? Again, we're looking back onto history with our perspective, and perhaps hearing that, though I think you can sense the emotion in that, maybe even relate to the emotion of that, we, we might be thinking, yes, okay, surely there's loss and despair and concern about the future there, but I mean, come on, aren't you overstating it a little? I mean, he's just a man. Shouldn't the focus be a little bit more on the scripture and on the word of God rather than the, the works, the writings of Luther, what he had or could produce? After all, if you've been under my teaching for a while, you, you know the unique nature of Scripture the same way Martin Luther himself did. Passages like 2 Peter 1.21 are ones we have talked about. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's the author of Scripture, right? Not just the men who wrote the things down, it's God himself. In fact, that's what 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 tells us about the nature of the Word of God, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. You and I, we know in light of texts like this that scripture is far more important than the writings of any theologian or reformer even. So did the people of that day just not understand that or was it just shock and sorrow and grief that was speaking in statements and laments like that? Actually, I think it was probably more than anything else due to the fact that the people of that day actually had a concept of what the scriptures really were, but they did not still have the Bible in their own language. See, Luther cited scripture, we, we, he would say liberally, but not, not in a bad way, meaning all the time. <laughs> He was just, his books were filled with the word of God. His preaching was filled with scripture. He was making it understandable. When Luther would write and when Luther would preach, he did so in German. 
And so for, for the common average person who didn't understand Latin, who of course could not read Greek or Hebrew, from hearing Luther preach or reading the works of Luther, they were seeing and hearing more scripture, more of the word of God than they ever really had before. Even in that day when the, the mass was conducted, it was all in Latin. So you, even if you went to the church and the priest was leading a service, he, he, was, he was saying everything in words you could not understand. But Luther was making the word of God accessible, and the fear then was that if Luther's voice was lost, if Luther's writings were going to be burned and destroyed by the Pope and the imperial command, then for so many people it meant the word of God itself would again be inaccessible and hidden from them. That's what they were going to lose. Here's where we should think about what it is that we really have in this access we have to the word of God. I've said this many times before, and I'll continue to say over and over again for the rest of my life and to to every uh, group that I have the chance to teach at length or especially those who I have a, a mandate from the Lord to pastor. The gift that we have been given in access to the word of God in our language is greater than every other blessing that we have. And that's a big statement. I totally get that but I would stand behind it. I really sincerely believe there is no greater gift in your life. It's not your home. It's not the money in your bank account. It's not the family heirlooms that you possess. It's not the land that's deeded into your name. It's not your family. It's not your friends. It's not your abilities, your skills, or your knowledge. It's not even this great gift that we have of being free and able to gather together with God's saints in a building like this, though I'm convinced this gift is vastly underappreciated in our day, even with everything we see in the world going on that should make this moment so sacred, so special to each one of us. It's still vastly underappreciated, but this gift, this assembly gift, does not compare to the gift of the Word of God in our language that you and I can understand. The greatest gift that God has given his people is access to his word in our own language. Understand clearly why this is the case. It is only here in the scriptures, through reading his word, that we objectively and truly hear from God. In the scriptures is where he reveals himself to us to be known personally by us as he really is. You can know there is a God by looking at nature all around you. You can understand that God must be powerful, that God must be creative, but you will not know that God is loving. You will not know that God's plan of redemption unless you meet him in the pages of his word. He is not only here in the Bible giving us his name, but he demonstrates for us the fullness of his character. He proclaims his promises to us. He shows us in the scriptures our greatest need and his glorious solution found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The scriptures that we have, these 66 books here, are the highest authority and the greatest gift in the Christian life. This is what we mean when people like me who like the old stuff use the Latin phrase sola scriptura. Or in English, the phrase scripture alone. We mean scripture is the highest authority and the greatest gift of God alone. There's nothing else that compares to it. It stands above all else. It's what Luther understood. It's what Luther was proclaiming in his day. The Bible's unique. It's above everything else. It's more valuable than anything else. This passage in 2 Timothy, as we've often pointed out as we've studied it, uses vivid pointed language to drive this home for us when it says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Scripture 
is unique. It's the only thing in all of creation said to be theanustos, is the Greek word, breathed out by God, as it is translated here. These words of God are the words of God. So they teach, they're, they're, they give us reproof, they correct us, they train us, they make us, the text says, able to be complete and equipped for every good work. This is what we need, my friends. This is what we need. Without the scriptures, our highest guide, we are left to lesser authorities and often just to our own traditions and preferences based on wherever we live and whatever time we live. In the Bible, we, we know the danger of this. We can learn that, again, looking historically, look at the nation of Israel, where we're told at, at various periods, did what was right in their own eyes. That was the, the culture. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And Israel, Israel was judged for that as sin because God makes clear to us what is right in our own eyes, what our hearts want in and of themselves is not. What honors the Lord? Proverbs 14, 12 tells us, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. As God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer is not you. (laughs) You don't really even understand your own heart well enough to manage it. To rely on our own hearts, our own wisdom, our own traditions, our own preferences, our tendency, natural tendency to minimize our sin, right? Because nothing we do is quite as bad as what everybody else did. <laughs> like, sins, yeah, sins are awful over there. I mean, not here. Like, we're okay. It's a little sin. Those are big sins, right? This is the natural tendency. Falling into that trap, following our hearts into that trap, is every bit as dangerous as just blindly following Rome and the traditions and commands of the Pope that Luther was fighting against at the time of the Reformation. So this lament in 1521 when Luther died, I think it was more than just mourning the man. It was mourning the fact that if Luther's voice was lost, the people knew they were losing something greater than Luther. They were losing the voice of God in the scriptures that Luther was making so accessible and understandable to them. In some ways, I wonder if the people of that day didn't actually understand their need for and value the word of God more than we do, despite the fact that we have such ready access to it, oh, that we would be challenged, that we would repent when we see such passion in history, that it would affect us. But again, let me come back to 1521. There's so much lament, there's so much sadness at the kidnapping of Luther. But if you've been waiting to know what happened, Luther's life did not end on May 4th, 1521. The knights who abducted Luther did so forcefully and put on quite the show. Everyone thought, it's over, that is the end. But in reality, those knights were actually friends of Frederick, the elector of Saxony, who was still Luther's greatest protector politically. Frederick had initiated a plan. He was very careful in how he went about this. In fact, he himself didn't even know the full details of what would take place or where Luther would be taken. But the plan was that Luther would be kidnapped at some point and then secreted away to a place that only a handful of people knew. Frederick didn't want to know, so he would have plausible deniability. The the emperor or pope couldn't retaliate against him. I have no idea where Luther is, don't know, and that would be an honest statement. We think maybe only a handful of people, 12 to 15 perhaps, actually knew where Luther was headed. The knights took Martin through the forest, a very complex route, circling back, doubling different ways. You know, you've seen movies how they do this, right? Get into the safe house. Eventually, they arrived down far south and west of their original location at a place called the Wartburg Castle. 
They arrived under the cover of dark night. This place was isolated, hidden. Even today, I was reading, even today it is hard to access the castle. In fact, the best way to get on it is actually to get on a donkey and ride up the narrow pathway just like they would have done in that day. You can kind of make it with a bus, but it's really risky because of these sharp turns up the side of the mountain. Very isolated, alone, remote place under the cover of night they arrive. Luther was given the clothing of a nobleman. His name was changed. When he entered the castle, everyone was told that he was Knight George. And he was put into a a secret room, a room they would actually use to to stow away prisoners, so far away from everyone else. Into this little room, he was put away and told, listen, Martin Luther no longer exists here. No one can know who you are. If you leave this room, you are Knight George. You must look like a knight. So for the first time in his life, Luther grew a beard and grew out long hair, didn't have it shaved close like a monk would have. He was made to be completely unrecognizable. And this exile of sorts, which Luther would describe as being semi-self-imposed and undertaking what he would say partially willingly, was a really hard thing on Luther. For weeks he questioned, was this the right course of action? Did he do the right thing in going and being secreted away? Wouldn't it be better, he thought, to go back to Wittenberg to just preach, proclaim, write as much as I can, and then when they come to get me, die a martyr's death? But his friends and Frederick knew that Martin could do more if he were kept alive than his death would bring in that moment. So they kept him locked away in the Wartburg Castle. And Luther wrote, wrote a lot of letters, wrote theological tracts, wrote devotionals, wrote sermon outlines. His pen was not idle. Quite busy. In fact, a stunning amount of writing is produced at this time from Luther, even by modern standards. It's amazing how much he was able to do, largely because of the fact that he could do literally nothing else. He wasn't allowed to leave his room for fear of being seen or recognized for months into this exile. But it was after a few weeks, having written letters to friends, the few who knew where he was, and some things like this, and putting down his thoughts and that type of stuff, it was Luther's deep conviction about the power of the word of God that led him to undertake what was the most impressive and important task of the whole Reformation effort, up to that point and then beyond. Sitting in that room, Martin had only his Greek New Testament and Hebrew Old Testament. For a man who lived and breathed books like Luther, I'm thinking of myself, it would be pretty hard if I had to you know, be secreted away and all my books were, were left behind. Luther had only these two books, and so he took his pen and reading through that, decided he would begin to translate the Bible itself into German. Not just a passage here or there for a sermon or for a work, but the Bible as a whole. And in the course of about three months, Luther translated the entire New Testament from Greek into German. That's a remarkable work, even by modern standards. And the work Luther did was so good, so accessible to people in German, that a few years ago when I was in Springfield, we actually had a, a, a young lady who was a foreign exchange student from Germany, and uh, she was attending our church. And, and when I learned that German was her, her heart language, I wanted to get her a Bible, and I, I was able to order a Bible in German for her, and it is in large part the work of Luther. I mean, it was just incredibly good work he did in the space of three months. When he would finally get that completed, he used his dear friend Melanchthon, who's a fantastic scholar, one of the best Greek scholars of his day, to help him to to do the final edits and prepare for publication and, and then widely disseminate it throughout Germany. Luther, although he was locked away at the Wartburg Castle, was used by God to set free the word of God in the language of the people. And it was the most important thing the Reformation ever brought about. The Bible is the greatest gift of the Reformation era. 
in, German, in Germany and other nations too. Tyndale was instrumental. We haven't talked about Tyndale, though we could. That's a whole other series, I guess. And his work to get the Bible into English and others into other languages as well. This was what truly changed the world, was the Word of God being accessible firsthand to people. The greatest gift that has come through the Reformation work is that we have his theonistos, his words in our own language. So that even today and in every age, when someone reads the words of God, we can be taught, we can be reproved, we can be corrected, we can be trained in righteousness and made complete, equipped for every good work. So we'll leave Martin at the Wartburg Castle. He spends about 11 months, 12 months in isolation there. Eventually, we may come back to his story. You'll learn about how he returns to Wittenberg. You'll learn about the many more years he, he lives um, and does more ministry. But I think there is a good point for us to kind of hang up the story of Luther, at least for, for this year. But my challenge and my hope is that as we've heard of the things that took place to here and then Luther's work there, that you and I would become people who are like Luther and would say that we too are captive to the word of God that we would again be known, as Christians have been known in various places throughout history, as people of the book. That this would become so central to us. Scripture would mark us, that conflicts would be solved by us going to the word of God and doing what he says in obedience, no matter how difficult, no matter how countercultural that may be. That our daily lives would not just look like people around us, but in a slightly more moral sense, but that you and I would be people who are, have our whole lives restructured and shaped by the word of God and our love for learning and applying the words of God in our lives. That our hearts would be daily challenged, our actions would be regularly conforming to the word of God. That we would be people who know and live in light of the gospel that we learn on these pages of scripture that we have. That you and I, we'd be people who reject the temptation to follow our own hearts, our own ways, to defend our traditions, minimize our sins, all the death that our heart would lead us to, and instead we would have the word of God speak to us. That we would live daily as the Lord intends, repentant of our sin and pursuing him and obedience to him as transformed servants of Jesus Christ. That we would look in the word and see the cross of Jesus Christ daily then, as we talked about last week, we would live truly, solely, Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And I believe that if we were this type of people, that God would begin to use his word in us to cause personal reformation, corporate reformation in our church, even if his grace would allow a widespreading reformation across our nation and others. It will come through the work of the word of God. May it begin with us. This is the greatest gift of God, the most valuable inheritance of the Reformation to us. We must be people who see this and live in light of this in order to truly honor God. So worship team, if you'll come, I'm gonna challenge you to respond to the word of the Lord today. And I'll encourage you to do so by meditating on the word of the Lord today. They're gonna sing this final song, but I'm gonna encourage you, if you have your Bible or you have the one in front of you or bring up your phone, Look at at least one of these passages and see what the Bible says about itself and then prayerfully reflect on your own heart and your own view of the scriptures. Do you see it in this light? You can read Hebrews 4.12 if you want just one powerful verse. James 1.19-25 for a little bit longer section about what the word of God would do and demand of us. Or go to Psalm 119 and read the whole psalm if you want a longer 
passage. But as you read this and as the song is sung, and as it's these moments of prayer and reflection and repentance, ask that the Lord would make you too one like Luther who is captive to the word of God. Let's pray and respond. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the fact that here it is in our language, accessible to us, that in this moment of response right now, we can hear you speak without any mediation. It's your words. May we meditate on them. May they change us. May they shape us so that we would live lives truly glorifying you. In your name we pray. Amen.